Good morning. Take your Bible, turn to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 8 and 9, but I'd like to read starting at Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you, Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the, of the covenant. I am making between you, between me and you, and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. I have established between me and all life on the earth. Perhaps you have uh, suffered a broken promise. Broken promises hurt. To avoid the hurt of broken promises, people make contracts. Time was, business uh, was conducted with a handshake. A handshake was a proof of mutual understanding and the bond of agreement. A recent column by Harvey McKay was titled, When a Handshake Isn't Good Enough. A handshake used to mean, I will keep my promise. I give you my word. But businessman, author of five best-selling books, um, he's a columnist, perhaps you read his column, often published in the business section, Harvey McKay with uh, Ann Landers-like advice to people in business, said when a handshake isn't good enough, and he goes on to extol the virtues of making solid agreements. And to make an agreement solid, McKay says, you have to put it in writing. In other words, you have to turn it into a contract. It has to be legally binding. It has to stand up in court. And his motto is that a meeting of the minds is kept through a contract from becoming a clash of the wills. In effect, he's saying, because a handshake is no longer good enough, 
is moral is you can't trust people. You want to, but you can't. A handshake isn't good enough. People don't stand behind their word. They break their promises. In business, that's costly. It means dollars. But what's more, it's costly because broken promises hurt. And the fallout in every kind of relationship is distrust. And distrust can sour a person. Distrust curdles the spirit. It embitters the soul. God can change that. But it requires trusting Him. And because you can trust Him, there is power in His Word. There's power in his promise. You know, I've had uh, a few weeks to be working on this, this uh, message this morning. And I would say for three or four weeks now, I've, I've been trying to, to think of a time in my life. I just thought it would really be meaningful if I could think of a time in my life when someone broke a promise to me, I thought I would be able to remember a number of times. I know they're out there. And, and yet, I, you know, I'd lay in bed at night and I would try to just walk through, take inventory of my life trying to remember people who have betrayed their word to me, who have broken their promises to me, because I just thought, well, what a way to grab you and through my experience, remind you of how it hurts to have a promise broken. To be, as it were, emotionally crippled by a broken promise. Or I thought, if I can't think of when someone broke a promise to me, maybe I could think of a time when I broke a promise to somebody else and, and the wreckage that I caused. And I, nothing would come to mind. Uh, one day I went across the hall to Pastor Tim's office. I sat down. I said, I've been, I mean, this just gets me. I cannot think of a time when anybody broke a promise. I mean, I just, where's that sting? Where's that hurt? I, I've been racking my mind to remember. And then it just, it kind of hit me all at once. Uh, Because of God in my life, because he's a promise keeper, because I can trust him, because his word to me is reliable and dependable, God has just brought healing to my life. There's a little place for trauma when God is a bigger promise keeper than any promise breaker. That's the power of a promise keeper. And God is a promise keeper. A promise, one you can count on, can change everything. And I think we even see that here when God makes Noah 
a promise. Now, certainly Noah trusted God. God spoke to Noah, informed him. And, of course, Noah had to take these huge steps of faith to build an ark of such proportion. We're not told explicitly in Genesis how long it took him, but he was like me. He, had a, he was a man probably with not much skill when it comes to building. And I know he had his sons and he maybe hired people, but I mean, that was a mammoth undertaking. He invested in everything he had. He put everything into that ark. And then the waters came and he and his family in that ark, along with those that God told Moa to bring with him, they were all saved. But I mean, that had to be a traumatic experience. I don't even know that we can imagine what it was like. I, I do think of those in Joplin, just recently, or the many, I mean, every day I turn on the news, I identify with these people, and yet I can't understand what it's like to be hunkered down and to feel like a railroad is, a train is just running right over you with all the fury and the wind, and that had to be on a different order and scale the kind of trauma that Noah experienced in the ark. I mean, it, it was a wild ride. And then in verse 15 of chapter 8, God said to Noah, and verse 16, he said, come out from the ark. And in verse 18, Noah came out. And in verse 20, Noah built an altar. And in Chapter 9, verse 1, God says, be fruitful and increase. Right there. Be fruitful and increase. I wonder if right there Noah had just a moment of crisis. Because in saying to Noah, be fruitful and increase, God is saying to Noah, Noah, it's time to move on. It's time to leave the ark. It's time to turn from the past and look to the future. And I just wonder if Noah wants to keep the ark. I mean, just maybe he needs it for a rainy day. And I, I mean, just reading between the lines, and I emphasize reading between the lines, there's nothing hidden here, but I was just thinking, maybe Noah is thinking, I'd kind of like to hang on to the ark. The ark is comforting. The ark is assuring. Who's to say there won't be another deluge, another tornado, another earthquake? It was a rocky ride, but it's my ride. And God's saying, move on. I thought maybe I was alone in this, and it just so happened I've been reading through Josephus, and Josephus, when he gets to this point, 
And I really mean this. I mean, it just so happens I finished the Jewish war and I started at the beginning of his antiquities, which starts with the creation of the world. And I got here to Noah. And Josephus says that he thinks Noah feared God might annually inundate the earth. And if that's to be, then maybe you ought to keep that ark around. But God says, be fruitful and increase And back in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, after God, after, as, as God smelled the aroma of that sacrifice which represented Noah's heart, he thought in his heart. He doesn't express it. It says he thought in his heart, I will never bring this kind of a calamity upon man or creation again. But he doesn't say anything. He thinks it in his heart in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 8. And then he says, be fruitful and increase. And the very next thing out of his mouth is, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to make a promise to you. I'm going to make a solemn agreement with binding force. And I'm going to hold myself to it. And it's then that God reveals his promise. It's what we call a unilateral, which means one way, unconditional, no strings attached covenant. In other words, God makes Noah a promise. God thought it up. God accepts all the conditions of assurances. God carries it out. That's a promise. But God calls it a covenant. In verse 9, he says, look, I now confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. In fact, the Hebrew gives a sense of immediacy as if he's saying, look, I'm now confirming my covenant. Some translations say establish. He uses the word covenant, which I've already expressed is, for all intents and purposes, a promise. Seven times. Seven times he repeats. Three times I confirm. Three times I'm going to seal this with my special signature, a rainbow. I think he's trying to get the message across to Noah. Noah, you can count on me. You can trust me. You can take me to the bank. Leave the ark. Move on. It's a new day. I guarantee it. Be fruitful and increase depends trusting on me, Noah, not on the ark. To trust God and to have to leave the ark and leave it behind required someone bigger than the ark, someone bigger than the trauma, and that's God. Because God is a promise keeper who keeps his word, who speaks truth, that can be trusted, who validates our trust, the character of God, can change us. And I think that's what's been at work in my life, because when you really turn your life over to Him, when you put your life and all of its parts into His hands, I mean, it's all state to the 20th power. But you 
and I can only know how trustworthy God is if we trust him. We can sing about him being trustworthy. We can read about him being trustworthy. But if we don't step out in the need of our life, we'll never experience at the level of our heart just how trustworthy he is. Our faith and our trust will not grow except by trusting him, by increasing and multiplying, by being fruitful and moving on, by leaving your ark and trusting in him. But when you do, you learn that he's a promise keeper. And because he's a promise keeper, you can make promises and you can keep them. I see this so clearly in the life of David. David was a promise keeper because God is a promise keeper. In second, first in 2 Samuel, it would, I want to just look briefly at the scope of a, an experience in David's life. Perhaps you know that Saul had it out for David. I mean, David was on the run for a long period of his life. Saul haunted and sought his life. And when the Philistines killed Saul, David was crowned king. It was a new day. His life, I would imagine, couldn't have been better. The days of running and hiding from Saul were over. God's promise to David was fulfilled. But David remembered a promise that he had made to Saul's son, Jonathan. When Saul threatened to kill David, Jonathan fought to save David. And he succeeded. And he went to David and he asked David to show him loving kindness. He said to David, if I die, something happens to me. I want you to show loving kindness to me and my family, to those who survived me. Now, loving kindness, the Hebrew word chesed, is a very significant word. It, it simply, and yet most profoundly, means um, promise keeping, covenant keeping. God shows loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated loyal love. That's what Jonathan asked of David. He said, would you show me loyal love? If anything happens to me, take care of my family. And so when Jonathan died, David kept his promise. Why? He was now king. Nobody would have faulted David if he didn't keep his promise. Everybody knew how his life had been made hell on earth by Saul and his household, except for Jonathan. David kept his promise because 
And we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 9, 3, because of God's loving kindness, because of God's loyal love, because God is a promise keeper, and he had kept his promises to David. David knew God to be a promise keeper, and it inspired in him. It put into his heart that he has to be like the one who is his God, his Lord, the one he calls God. Not just to reap the benefits of putting your trust in Him, but to be so transformed by the character character of the one in whom you put your trust that you become a promise keeper, that you show loving kindness. And so he kept his promise. He went to one of the surviving members of the household of Saul, just a servant, and he said, has anyone survived? Is there still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And he was told, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. 2 Samuel 9.3 As if the handicap was more important than his name. The servant knew his name But he said, in effect, yeah, there's still someone, but he's crippled in his feet. As if to say, you don't have to keep your promise to him. As if he didn't deserve David's interest or the kindness of God that held David to his promise. His name was Mephibosheth. Don't try to say it. He was five when the Philistines killed Jonathan, his father, and his grandfather, Saul. And at the news of their death, they fled for fear of the Philistines. And Mephibosheth's nurse picked up this little five-year-old and began running along with the rest of of the family and the household of Saul. And she stumbled and she dropped him and he evidently broke his ankles. And I guess, again, when you're on the run, things don't get set right and he was forever lame. And so David set out to find him and found him at a place called Lodabar, which means without pasture. In other words... It was kind of a dry, hardly habitable place. And here Mephibosheth was a cripple and uncultured and an outcast. And David found him. And when David came to him, Mephibosheth said to David, What do you want with a dead dog like me? That pretty much sums up the life of Mephibosheth. And David took Mephibosheth and endowed him with everything that belonged to his grandfather Saul, his estate, and his servants. And he gave directions and orders that his estate should flourish. But he took Mephibosheth to his palace and had him sit at his own table and treated him like his own son. 
That's showing loving kindness. That's promise keeping. That's the kind of God we have. The kind of God whose character changes a king and causes him to become a promise keeper. And I don't think it takes much for us to connect the dots. If God's character changes his king, God's character should change his own children. We should be people of our word. People who keep promises, keep covenants, show trust, show loving kindness. Not because of who we are in our human nature. In this day and this age when even a handshake doesn't count anymore. Every word has to be backed by a contract that will hold up in court. How refreshing to find people of that same human selfish nature who are changed and transformed by a God of such character that he changes them because they're not just people, they're his children. And they know his heart. And they know that he is a promise keeper who keeps loving kindness. It's not that Mephibosheth is deserving, but because the promise of loving kindness is enduring. And behind it is the very loving kindness of God. Why was David loyal? Because of a promise. A promise bankrolled by the promise keeper, God. I'd like to suggest that we can make promises because God keeps his. I don't know how many of you saw the royal wedding between Prince William and Kate Middleton. One gem from the Bishop of London, Richard Chartres, his, his charge to them. And I'd like to quote this. Listen carefully. He says to millions of viewers and all of those gathered on that occasion, he says, as the reality of God has faded from so many lives in the West, there has been a corresponding inflation of expectations that personal relations alone will supply meaning and happiness in life. This loads our partner with too great a burden. We are all incomplete. We all need the love which is secure to thrive. The loving kindness of God is what he's speaking about. The one who keeps promise. That's the foundation of the promise that you make to your spouse when you say, I commit myself to you for the rest of my life. That's the foundation of promises that are big and promises that are small. Or as Jesus said, let your word be yes and yes and no and no. Just speak it and be it. 
Promise keeping makes a difference. Earlier I told you, you can't trust human nature. You want to, but you can't. There's just too much at stake. Jesus is the proof of God's secure love that makes the difference. Because God is a promise keeper, we can make and keep promises too. When I was a kid, growing up, I, I read Dr. Seuss. Maybe that's what's wrong with me today. I don't know. <laughs> a favorite of mine was Horton hatches an egg. Horton, an elephant, promises to sit on an egg and hatch it for its mother, lazy Miss Maisie. A short break turns into weeks and months. And naturally, the absurd sight of an elephant sitting atop a tree makes quite a scene. Horton is laughed at by his jungle friends, exposed to the elements, captured by hunters, a force to endure a terrible sea voyage, and finally placed in a traveling circus. However, throughout all of this, he refuses to leave the nest because he promised Maisie he would look after the egg. Do you remember what he said? I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. And an elephant's faithful 100%. A make-believe children's book makes an elephant a hero because he keeps a promise. A promise keeper for kids. Can't we do better than a make-believe elephant? I loved westerns growing up. Grew up watching Roy Rogers and the Lone Ranger. They were cowboys who wore white hats, men of character and loyalty. They don't make westerns like that anymore. Maybe they shouldn't. But I was recently encouraged by Crossfire Trail. I guess I wasn't alone. When it aired, it was the most watched made-for-cable-TV movie ever. In the story, Rafe Covington travels hundreds of miles from San Francisco to Wyoming in the 1870s to keep his promise to his dying friend. Promise me you'll look after my ranch and see to the care of my wife. His widow, however, is, we learn, being courted by the town snake oil salesman, a real charmer who wants the land for its hidden wealth. When Covington gets in the way of his plans and schemes, he threatens and threatens to ruins, ruin them. This guy grumbles. What kind of dinosaur upends his whole life to keep his promise to a dying man? A make-believe movie makes a cowboy a hero because he keeps a promise. A promise keeper for adults.
Can't we do better than make a make-believe cowboy? Keeping promises does create heroes. Not just in Seuss books. Not just in make-believe movies. God is in the business of making heroes. Because he is a promise keeper. He keeps loving kindness. And those who know it become heroes because they become promise keepers. And they keep loving kindness too. The world needs real heroes. They don't always end up in books. They don't always end up in movies. But they're real life to some people. They're real heroes to some people. How about your kids? How about your wife? Your husband? The co-worker, the neighbor, the relative? Be a promise keeper. Be a hero to the people in your life. And find new power to be that hero by trusting God and proving Him to be your promise keeper. Author, ethicist, and theologian Louis Smeeds wrote, Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship, you will not desert. If you have people, you will not forsake. If you have causes, you will not abandon then you are like God. You are like God. And well, we should be if we are his children. Will you stand with me? There's two moving parts to this. Put your trust in God. So the take-home is, put your finger on that thing in your life that you want to abandon, that you want to run away from, that you want to give up on, and trust God for that. And trust Him to work in you and through you, through His power and loving kindness. That's one part. The other part is to put your finger on that thing that perhaps you need to uphold. Perhaps you as a dad with Father's Day approaching haven't made time for your child. And maybe you've looked too lightly on the promises and the word that you've spoken to your child or to your spouse. You know what it is. 
God would have you trust him to be like him, to make a difference in that person's life, to be God's hero. So as we pray, and then we're going to have some closing music. I'm going to be up here, and pastoral staff and elders, if you'd like to make that decision through prayer with one of us, we invite you to come. Maybe you don't know Jesus and you'd like to pray to ask Jesus Christ to show you his loving kindness, to invite him to be your Lord, to express your trust in him. We invite you to do that. Whatever your prayer concern, we invite you to come if you'd like to pray with us and bring that to the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a promise keeper. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. You who know what it means to sacrifice the one, the one and only whom you love so. Because you love us too. Like him. With such a great love. How can we not trust you? For the things in our life and on our heart today. We commit them to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.